Hello, welcome to Rounding the Earth. I'm your host, Matthew Crawford, and we're going to do a little things a little bit differently today. Uh, I'm going to be the only one here, and that's kind of a change of pace. Um, but I, I felt like there was an important conversation that needed to be had, and that it would be a little bit easier to have this conversation alone. So, um, so here we are. Um, let's talk. Let's talk about uh, fear, uncertainty, doubt, and the dollar. And you know, much of the reason I I wanted to have this conversation is because uh, the number of people who have written me or uh, talked to me uh, expressing just general fear about where we are in the world is not a small number. Uh, it's a it's a steady stream, essentially. And if that many people are you know reaching out to me and saying, I think you know something bad's going to happen and I'm worried, then I'm sure that the number of people out there who are worried is in the millions, if not billions, and there are there are real reasons to worry. And then there are not so real reasons to worry. And that's part of what I want to talk about. <clears throat> so, um, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, if you go back to 2020, uh, the very first interview that I did with anyone uh, was with um, a guy named Ari Witten, who runs a podcast called The Energy Blueprint. And um, that that episode uh, has been pulled off of YouTube, um, of course, as YouTube does. It doesn't uh, doesn't explain why it is it pulls videos off. But one of the things that I said during that video, we were, were talking, Ari and I are talking, and, and you know, we agreed on a lot that we were seeing seeing during 2020, including the fact that um, there seemed to be suppression of information about early treatment medicines. But <clears throat> he said, um, you know, it could this, it, 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 I don't know if he asked the question or sort of implied it, but he, but he said, you know, that this looks like it's all about, you know, dollars for vaccine profits. And I thought, I said, uh, no, think bigger. I said, you know, think about the dollar itself, you know, the, the size of, of, you know, everything surrounding the dollar, <clears throat> uh, the entire dollar market, which could come crashing down is so much larger. Right. This seems. Um, I think this is about control of the next economic era, <clears throat> and this is what I thought. Really, in in essence, from before the pandemonium began, and part of the reason I use the word pandemonium instead of pandemic is because, um, well, one, pandemic sounds sillier. Uh, but no, aside from that, what I really believe is that it's not. Um, it's not just about this whole virus vaccine thing. In fact, I think that's uh, that's a setup for larger games that are being played. And <clears throat> I do think that, that we are heading into a world of pain, but actually less so in the United States than almost anywhere else in the world. And I'll explain why that is, or, or I'll, at least I'll give you some pointers. Um, and, and understand, this is not to say that I don't think that, that there's pain, but I think that there's going to be less pain for Americans in particular because Americans have um, the best position of negotiation in a rapidly changing world. And I think that actually what we're seeing with the U.S. you know, versus, if you want to use that paradigm, versus Russia or versus China, is in essence um, a world war being held at the negotiation tables. And I'll try to do my best to, 
to lay out why it is that I view things that way, but I'm going to point everyone toward a guy named Peter Zihan. And, um, and understand I have, uh, you know, some, some differences with Zihan. However, I think that his books are very important. I think that his books actually tell us a lot of what is already known amongst people in the government world or people at high levels in the corporate government complex, military corporate government complex, however you want to think of all that, because they kind of go hand in hand, right? Um, you know, the banks, the banks and the military have to be tied together and the corporations essentially have to be tied together with them in the current economic paradigm <clears throat> to make it work. You know, bank military separation, that's the hardest. That's the hardest because uh, somebody needs to pay the military for the military to exist. And, um, you know, how do you pay the military? Well, you, you print money. So the seniorage is what gets used to uh, create the current level of government that we have, the level of centralized government. And we're told that we, we need the centralized government. Now, otherwise, some other, you know, some madman will take over. And that's almost certainly incorrect. But a lot of world history, I think, has been sort of steered and designed to make us think that it's all correct. Um, the fact of the matter is, Japanese Hitler never could have successfully invaded the United States. In fact, the idea is just on face laughable. <clears throat> we have these, um, and, and this is something that um, Zihan goes through some of this. Um, you know, maybe we're thinking of things slightly differently, and I'm saying that that there's some false history in all this, and he does not go into that. But, um, you know, being a deep ocean uh, empire or power, let's just say power, is not a simple task at all. And there are only a few nations in the world that have the technological expertise to pull it off. And that hasn't really changed since World War II. Uh, most nations are just trying to do for themselves and their people to advance as well as possible. But, you know, it, it, why, why would they invest in deep sea ocean voyaging? It just doesn't make sense, especially given the Bretton Woods Accord, which said, hey, we're the U.S., we have the dollar, we're the new reserve currency, we're the the big kid on the block now. So we're just going to let everybody trade while we police the oceans. What they were, you know, part of what the U.S. got out of that was you don't need to invest in learning, uh, you know, deep sea ocean voyage technology. You don't need to build a Navy that's particularly strong at all. And so, you know what? People didn't. People didn't invest in that Navy. It didn't behoove them to. <clears throat> But, uh, you know, let, let's talk about the accidental superpower. You know, I, I wasn't sure where I was going to go with this, but I'll go ahead and share a screen that, that shows, um, you know, Zihan's books as they're available wherever. Um, <clears throat> and I think this is the best one of the three, uh, is the accidental superpower. And this book, um, you know, there are people who argue over why it is that the U.S. is successful. And... You know, is it magic dirt, right? Uh, if you haven't heard this argument, it's, it's is the U.S. successful because the people are successful, because there is a moral fabric, um, you know, and people who are in the, um, I don't know, uh, the actual white supremacist camp, uh, which is much larger than the media makes it appear to be. But, um, you know, th those who really do believe in sort of a Western hegemony, 
uh, intellectual hegemony or something like that that just, you know couldn't be overtaken that, that is the reason why there is like a right to rule or something like that would argue um, that there are there's better genetics or something right um, what Zihan goes to, I, I think that it's a it's a combination of several forces that I'll talk about <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is the United States, of America is the economic crown jewel of the world. And Zihan lays this out very well. We have these, you know, we have the easiest borders in the world to defend. We have these oceanic borders on the east and the west. Then to our north, we have this land called Canada, where almost everybody who lives there lives pretty close to the U.S. border. I say almost everybody. It, it, it's more than half. It's substantially more than half, if I understand it correctly. Live within like two dozen miles or something, or is it, is it 25, 50 miles? I'm not sure exactly. Um, actually, one second. Okay, sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> so we, we have these, these great borders. We're not worried about uh, Canadians invading us and um, you know crossing the border with hockey sticks uh, coming to take Detroit. I'm not even sure we're worried about keeping Detroit, but one way or another, um, you know, we, we outsize Canada with population and military and all that. Uh, we're not worried about Mexico much either. And in fact, we're, we're growing economically much closer to Mexico. We are intentionally investing in pivoting from China and having more of our manufacturing done in Mexico. A lot in Southeast Asia also. Um, some of these, um, a, a lot of Americans don't really think too much about Southeast Asia, but these, but the nations there are extremely populous. And on an educational and a technological level, they are advancing faster than China. And a lot of this has been kept out of the public, right? There's a public perception that gets created. Um, but, you know, uh, ever since uh, yeah, the Philippines, by the way, was the largest ever U.S. territory. A lot of people don't think about that, don't know that necessarily, but but it is. And, you know, we've been in that area um, making plans, uh, develop, helping develop the economies in certain ways, sculpting what would be the next, the beginning of the next era for decades. <clears throat> um, so, well, okay. So back to the U S yeah, we're, we're going to pivot more toward Mexico and grow with Mexico, which means, you know, Mexico really has, uh, no incentive to ever do anything like try to invade us. But again, we're, we are military, we have, extreme military superiority. It just wouldn't work. Mexico is, you know, would much prefer to, for some number of its citizens to just be able to cross the border and work. And that arrangement seems to be fine with uh, the leaders of both countries. So it will simply continue at some level. Um, and, you know, there's a question and there's a real debate about what level is optimal and, you know, optimal means different things for different people, but I'm going to dodge that conversation for today. Um, so the U.S. is special. Okay, we, we've got a good defensive position. Um, but Zihan points out how important uh, water traffic is. Uh, imagine dragging a sled with um, 
uh, with, with items on it. Um, yeah, think think about whatever items uh, you might put in a sled or a wagon, but let's think sled. Let's think something you can feel the friction as you drag it on the ground, whether you're on snow or not, right? Well, as you drag something across the ground, if you have 200 pounds on that sled, you have to pull pretty hard. It's easier than just carrying that 200 pounds, but you still have to pull pretty hard. Well, imagine that same 200 pounds floating on a raft and you have a rope and you get to walk that raft down the river. Uh, well, that's that's a whole lot less force, right? Um, water, the friction on water is such a tiny fraction of the friction against the ground. So water traffic uh, aids, it facilitates making a geography into a smaller world, economically speaking. You can get goods uh, from one place to another relatively cheaply. And the U.S. has the world's best waterways. And it's not even by a little, it's by a lot. There are a lot of countries that simply don't have, you know, navigable waterways or they have two, right? Whereas the U.S., I mean, even just the the rivers that are considered uh, the major tributaries of the Mississippi, I think there's like 11 or something like that. I may have the number wrong, but, um, you know, it's so many, so many different rivers. Um, I grew up in Alabama and, uh, I, I can't even remember all the different rivers that I was at or, you know, drove, you know, drove a, over a bridge, saw um, Nebraska. Uh, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure if people normally think about it this way, but Nebraska just has rivers every, there are so many different rivers. Um, if, if the economies were to go backwards somewhat, we would make use of those rivers much, much more. But the fact of the matter is, whatever it is that we do internally, we already know how to get goods up and down those rivers, um, you know, to the extent that we need in order to, you know, make the a lot of the economy happen. <clears throat> so, yeah, you know, we, we've got a uh, we've got you know better borders, deep sea, ocean. You know, we, we've got the world's best navy and the world's best mastery of ocean voyaging, trading around the world. We really, we run the show. The United States does like it or not. That's the way it works. Uh, and, and then we have the waterways. We have local waterways so that we can, we can look inward and do a, a better job than most countries. Um, I, I think like the U.S. has more navigable waterways than like all of Asia or something crazy like that, or all of Europe, you know, either or both. Um, and then uh, the U.S. has the best spread of resources, right? The number of things that are needed for modern technology, the number of raw resources that we would need to import is very, very small. And we control deep ocean voyage traffic, so we can import them. Uh, and, and we have great farmland, as it turns out, too, right? We just have all these advantages, really, in, in, in a lot of ways, the U.S. is magic dirt, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, um, I, I don't want to say that the U.S. Uh, people aren't a moral people. I think that there is a lot to the fact that uh, most of the U.S. Uh, came from traditions that focused on morality in various different ways. Some of that was controlled focus. Some of it comes from various religions and religious experiments. Some of the, some of the experiment of Protestantism was exported from Europe to the United States. And anyone who felt uncomfortable in Europe had a place to go, um, starting 
some point in the 1500s, yeah, no, more in the 1600s, um, but, but for a very long time since. <clears throat> so um, the U.S. is in the best position, whereas China, uh, there are so many resources that China needs and has. There are some that are literally only mined in the U.S., that are used in, in technologies. And as we've seen recently, especially with pulling the plug on advanced Chinese chip fabrication, uh, a lot of the story of China having grown so much technologically just isn't true. As it turns out, most of the advanced electronics are put together in the US. You know, uh, Western corporations controlled the situation. Um, most of what's done in China, China is a, a cheap port of manufacture. It's an assembly port low value added. And when Ocean Voyage is cheap, you can do that. You can move all the different parts. You can have them uh, you know, made in one nation in Asia and then moved by boat into China. I think some things assembled, but but the heavy, the high level technology stuff happens in South Korea. It happens in Japan. It happens in um, various places around Southeast Asia at times. Um, but, you know, the West has made sure that very little of it happened in China. And no matter how many stories you read about Chinese um, official, you know, Chinese spies, uh, you know, buying or uncovering technology, that certainly doesn't mean that that technology is even ever put in the hands of someone who can understand it and make it useful and make it valuable. It's not even clear if all of that technology handed over would even be real or if some of it would just be like a wild goose chase. Um, Peter Zihan in his most recent book points out that, that, uh, China wasn't even making, uh, all, you know, uh, making all the parts of it assembling a single ballpoint pin, uh, domestically until 2017. <clears throat> so, you know, the idea that, that China has developed its domestic markets to the point of independence is just nonsense. Sure. They could put up big buildings, uh, and make them glossy looking. All over the place. There are a lot of things that are superficial on the outside, but um, they're they're not the technological juggernaut, and they're not the resource juggernaut, and they're certainly not the ocean trade juggernaut. Further than that, all of Asia distrusts everyone else, right? And this is something I think that um, this is one of the reasons I don't buy the magic dirt theory. I don't think that the level of distrust in Asia is natural. I think it was fomented by Western corporations since the advent of the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company in 1600 and 1602, uh, the most psychopathic Europeans have been filtered to join these international corporations and go down to you know, go, go everywhere in the world, whether it was Southeast Asia, South America, the Caribbean, North America, and they would, they would make slave plantations. And they would do this in different ways, but in a lot of places they would, you know, find like rival princes, basically heads of, of rival rival tribes, and they would prop one up, help them knock the other one over, and then rule by proxy from the outside. <clears throat> and if that new ruler ever double-crossed the West on the deal, they could just, you know, do the opposite and topple that leader. And, and the West figured out that the boat advantage, you know, when you don't have to fight until you get off the boat, you pick your battle. You know, you, you have some battle technologies that are already more advanced. Maybe you have cannons too, um, but you, you can just pick your battle. It was enough that the British Navy was able to just, you know, run roughshod 
over China when it decided it was the right moment in the 1830s and the 1860s during the Opium Wars. So, yeah, that happened to all of Asia. So, you know, for, for whatever it's worth, the West pretty much has controlled, you know, all of that scenario and the development of those nations economically and technologically ever since. Um, not entirely. It's not as if uh, every single nation in, in Asia could have, you know, been as modern as the United States. But um, you, I, I think most of you get what I'm laying down, I'm sure. So <clears throat> where am I going with this? Um, the U.S. has all the advantages. And we may be heading into a world uh, with more pains, at least for some period of time. And the reason is, is because so much has to be reorganized economically. Essentially, you've got, you know, if you think of the world as a giant factory machine, I'm not saying that, that that's the best way to run the world. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is optimization is something that in, it, it's self-encouraging. There's a feedback loop of the force of better economics being a magnet for what happens next. So the world's just giant factory machine, things going everywhere. There, there sometimes comes a point at which, you know, one line of trade is no longer the economically optimal one. Okay, so it needs to shift somewhere. But what happens when one shift after another, after another, after another just becomes a domino effect? And all these different, you know, millions of lines between cities in the world, between manufacturing areas in the world, suddenly reorganize. Well, that's a whole lot of people out of jobs at once. It, it's so much that it, it, it changes the entire face of economics in the world. And China will be hit the hardest by this as far as, uh, as, far as nations go. Um, so China will be hit the hardest by this and the U.S. is preparing the hardest and the U.S. has been for a number of years. Like I said, uh, we've been pivoting away from China. We've been setting Mexico up. We, we set up a gas pipeline. Um, that's part of it. So there's more energy there, more energy for manufacturing. We've been you know, building supply lines through Texas uh, up Highway 35. Um, Dallas will become the largest economic center in the U.S. outside of Washington, D.C., and probably not by a little. So what's going to happen to the dollar? Well, I, I thought my I thought my entire adult life that we would live through the end of the dollar era. And I still think that's sort of true, but there's something that's very weird going on that's at play. Now the reserve currency have shifted around ever since the Portuguese um, you know, routed Cape Horn in Africa and set up trade with Southeast Asia with uh, East Africa and India as they did uh, ever since that era. Uh, we've had these reserve currencies. And what that means is that one nation's currency is trusted enough, it's strong enough, that it is considered currency pretty much in every important locality. Uh, there's somebody who would trade for that currency. And this created uh, you know, a network of banking services that created new prosperity. <clears throat> um, and that was good for Europe. You can see why Europe would get addicted to it because you know, prior to all of this, um, you know, European uh, food and life and clothing, uh, you know, lack of silk, uh, was just kind of dreadful. So that probably got the Europeans out of bed and onto the boats to 
go travel around and go get some silk underwear and and spice from India and, and wherever. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, we, we've got the reserve currency. The first one was held by the Portuguese. And then there was a marriage with Spain. There was a, a death and a royal marriage and all that kind of stuff. And so Spain then had the power. But really, the, the Portuguese had developed these, uh, you know, the deep ocean voyaging and supply lines. And the Spanish were kind of clumsy with it. Eventually, they kind of fell down, and the Dutch were ready at that point to step forward. And the Dutch guilder became the next reserve currency, and the Dutch were all over the world trading and building empire. Then the French and the Frank, and then the British and the Sterling. And then the two world wars. I think going into World War One, I, I think you know the U.S. kind of knew that it was the next hegemon and that the dollar would be the reserve currency. Um, but everything had to shake out. I don't want to say had to. I think that, that the world wars were actually a, you know, a set of sculpted events. And, uh, and that's what left the U.S. In, in such a driver's seat with, you know, 95% of the remaining Navy at the end of these two battles and the ability to control world economic traffic. Apologies, I have an itchy nose today. I feel like uh, everybody's going like, to watch me pick my nose, but, you know, sometimes you just... You have an itch and you don't even know why. It's just the way things are. Anyhow, moving on. Um, so, uh, and, and I know this is, this is kind of long-winded, but I just want to talk through, um, you know, the economic realities because I think these these realities are known by the by a lot of the leadership at the top of corporations and government, at least enough to operate strategically, right? <clears throat> Um, now, is the dollar era coming to an end? Okay, it, it's sort of an interesting and a weird question. I went through this rotation of reserve currencies. Now, the stronger a reserve currency gets, the more there is this sort of tidal force of going through a wormhole and into a new world in which there's upheaval when the reserve currency collapses because there is so much invested in these supply lines and these supply lines depend on there being a stable currency to make them run, right? <clears throat> so <clears throat> even worse, um, there is a conflict of interest between the nation whose currency serves as the reserve currency and what everybody else would like to see in terms of monetary policy. Uh, you know, domestic versus international policy looks very different. And we call this the Triffin Dilemma or the Triffin Paradox. And when it is that a reserve currency is going to sort of rotate and some other nation is going to have it or some, some other entity is going to have control of that reserve currency, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of unwinding that goes on. The resolution of the Triffin Paradox is kind of like tension at a fault line, just giving way. There's an earthquake. And I think we're heading into the earthquake, but it's different. It is, it's definitely hurting a lot of places whose supply lines are simply breaking down as it's no longer in the interest or no longer in the capability of that locale to continue using the dollar. Um, and, and because there's so much economic pivoting, it all goes hand in hand. So <clears throat> if the dollar is collapsing and the U.S. has by far the most power and the most important, the most uh, valued seat at the negotiation table, 
you know, what's going on? Is there a Triffin paradox? Is there a Triffin dilemma? And I think that the answer is that there is going to be, there is necessarily going to be a shift in the reserve currency. Um, and or there may be no global reserve currency. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to throw this hypothesis out there. And it doesn't have to be true to continue with the story, right? One hypothesis is that, you know, Bitcoin will be the next reserve currency. And when you when you uh, look at Bitcoin, if you read John Nash's writing on ideal money, uh, and um, he was even asked about Bitcoin, he said um, he didn't know yet if Bitcoin was ideal money, but it was clear that a lot of the properties of Bitcoin fit you know, his his explanation of ideal money. Now, it may be that we are moving toward a monetary system in which there will simply be no more Triffin paradox, that there is no entity controlling running the currency. So that is one hypothesis. I think that we're going to move towards something either, either I, I think that there's going to be a attempt at a digital dollar, but I think it'll fail because really and truly, there is no difference between having, you know, a fiat dollar that's paper and one that's, you know, digital on your computer, except the potential surveillance tracking system. So there's that. Also, who pays for all that? If, um, if you know, the U.S. is no longer getting the same seniorage by printing currency and having other nations pay for it, which is what happens, um, then you know, what would be the advantage of shifting to this digital dollar? Well, maybe there would be the ability to tax some of the shadow markets that's currently, that currently go untaxed, right? I mean, you know, when people trade cocaine in the dark, that doesn't get taxed. But what if you now tax cocaine trades because it's all done with digital dollars? No, actually, I think that'll happen with other forms of money and collateral that are kind of off the grid. Okay. Uh, we needed to think it through, though. <clears throat> there, but there may still be, you know, if you have a cashless society, maybe there's more transactions to tax, but I really don't think that's going to make up for the power of seniorage. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think that there will be a at a digital dollar, but that too will collapse. Um, there's a question as to whether or not Bitcoin was actually created in the intelligence community. And when I first learned about Bitcoin, and I started to like what I what I saw, what I heard, uh, that I, I thought, no, it, it's silly. If you know, it would be silly for you know U.S. intelligence to do that because it's kind of like shooting itself in the foot. Because now Bitcoin competes with the dollar and puts pressure on the dollar and uh, takes you know sole control over over monetary policy away from the U.S. bankers and the U.S. you know intelligence military corporate complex amalgam thing, um, Franken-fascism, whatever you want to call it. Um, so it, it didn't make sense to me. But the more I thought about it, the more it makes sense, um, the higher probability I've put on Bitcoin being something like a deep intelligence project. I think it's very possible. Um, and, and it would be possible because, you know, after 2007, 2008, everybody's panicking. Everybody sees the end of the line for the dollar. Though, like I said, preparations were made for decades. So I don't know. I still don't know yet. There, there's a lot that's fishy about all of it. And uh, there's too much that is opaque in order to reach high, you know, high confidence conclusions. At least from my standpoint. So 
you know, what should we be worried about? Now, Zihan came out with another book, and I'm actually listening to it um, on Audible. I read the first two, but I'm listening to this one, and I'm not done with it yet. Uh, he's kind of obnoxious in the book. He just, like, every, like, seven chapters or so, he just, like, decides for no apparent reason to make fun of anti-vaxxers. Doesn't really go into, like, reasons why people would not want a COVID vaccine. He, he just acts, uh, you know, he just acts as if it's a total given that a brand new technology that's never been used uh, somehow combats, you know, the simple respiratory coronaviruses. I don't know. <clears throat> but the book is valuable on other levels. And assuming that his analysis is basically correct, that uh, the U.S. is the only nation that is in the position to easily use all of the resources that create modern society and modern technology, then we're at the driver's seat at the, at the negotiation tables. And a lot of what we're seeing around the world, we had the chance to sort of map out. In fact, we know from James Rickards, who wrote the bestseller Currency Wars, that Pentagon war games were being conducted um, 2009 or earlier. And that, you know, we already knew that Russia, I mean, his book was published six years before Russia dumped treasuries and bought gold, but that's exactly what happened, right? Russia dumped treasuries like 90% at least, right? I think they kept a little, um, but, you know, started shifting toward gold and shifting toward, hey, you know, we, we want to be able to trade, but we're going to, you know, use our own currency. In the meantime, you know, what the, what the U.S. is doing is basically laughing while, while encircling Russia further. Um, going into Syria, going into Ukraine, taking as much control over uh, the gas pipelines as possible. As we've heard from Victoria Neuland, the U.S. is perfectly willing to just say, you know, F Europe, right? We're going to control the lever. We're going to control the, the critical point of trade. And we, we're, we've done that also in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and Iraq. And, you know, nobody really has much to put on the negotiation table if we control that much. So um, if you're an American, this is good news for you, unless you're, you know, um, somehow like under the boot, so to speak. And I do think that that, that is happening more and more in the U.S., I think a lot of the um, British dystopian fiction actually describes the U.S. better, except that being a larger nation, there's more of a pressure outlet. So maybe it does describe Britain better. And I think that Britain is cozying up to the U.S. and um, almost acting as if it were a U.S. satellite. Um, you know, I think that Britain's uh, departure from uh, um, the Euro Eurozone, um, I think the Brexit was actually something planned by the elites and made to look like it was something that the yokels pushed through. Um, that's my theory on Brexit, and I've believed that actually for a number of years. Um, I think I have like Facebook posts about this from like 2016, or I, I'm not sure exactly what year it was that we were all talking about that more. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, uh, so you know there are reasons to worry. There are reasons to think that uh, it's possible that the leadership wants to cull some un unwanted, expensive population and to try to control as much of the rest as possible. However, it may still be the case that if you are not in the wrong circumstances, that you continue to have opportunity to build business, to you know participate in the economy, and that it may not look 
that much different than it did before. It may be that there are some things that are significantly more expensive and some things that become less expensive. The onward march of technology means that it becomes easier and easier to manufacture things, or we have new inventions that do things better. Uh, so it may be that some things, you know, cost 15% less and some things cost two times as much. We'll just have to see. And it may also be that there are plays being made on farming and ranching, whether that's the destruction of food factories, the culling of chickens, you know, whatever, that, um, that centralize more control over all of that. That may be so that when food becomes more scarce and more expensive and the U.S. can profit by exporting more of it, that um, the people who already know about what's going on, who have control levers in the world, can uh, take as much control of that as possible and profit the most, right? Like, what is the answer to the question, why did Bill Gates buy hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland? Uh, I think just pure profit is, is a pretty good motive. Right. You, you don't really need to go any further than that. Uh, it doesn't have to be for some grand depopulation event. Now, I do think that there is population control. I do think that there is iatricide. But I think that that's it's not like, hey, let's call 70 percent of the population. I, I, I'm not buying that story. I am buying the story that um, that what the leadership wants most is general global economic control as much as possible. And they will do whatever it takes in terms of, you know, murdering a handful of people. You don't want to do too much because then people notice and they get angry. But <clears throat> if you can murder a few key people and uh, ensure that it happens without too much friction, without too much resistance, you know, I think that's the business plan, right? Get the most power for the least amount of pain. So, you know, in disunited nations, um, Zihan goes through this. He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, at least so far as I know, he doesn't think about it as like negotiations at the negotiation table. Um, but I think that he should. I think that, um, that that's sort of a better story, but maybe there's, you know, there's only so many things that he can say about it, do about it. So <clears throat> now part of, Part of the reason I sat down today was uh, I have an email in particular in, in my inbox from somebody who came to uh, the Austin dinner that I held in January, in late January. And she said, oh, there are people around me saying that the dollar is going to collapse in three to six months. And I'm worried, you know, like I, I've been you know, preparing in my life. You know, I, I, I'm capable of certain forms of leadership. But if this happens, I really don't know what to do now. I named this, uh, you know, fear, uncertainty, doubt in the dollar because I think that fear is playing a critical role. Maybe things will collapse in three to six months, but then maybe it'll be sort of like re-piecing things back together, certain things one piece at a time. I don't think that the U.S. will suffer uh, a giant major failure. On the other hand, I think that fear is a very useful tool if you're looking at things from the perspective of um, the Frankish, Franken fascist, you know, conglomerate. Um, when, when you look at it from that perspective, fear, by the way, is very well known to get people to spend more. If you are concerned about the future, you may invest in a greater multitude of scenarios and pathways. You may prep her up. And I think people do that. People have been buying uh, seed. 
I'm one of them. You know, uh, in in the home that I live in, we have on the order of 2,000 pounds of food and seed. Uh, I think that it's important to know how to grow at least some of your own food. And we've been learning how to garden and we're, you know, we've got our own tomatoes uh, going right now. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, more broadly, people spend on a lot of things. They're more anxious. Uh, it's kind of like uh, comfort food. Uh, people spend more money on things to make themselves feel better, period. So fear is a control lever, lever that works in a number of ways. It shifts people's attention away from memory formation. Now, I've got that article early in the Chaos Agent series talking about how action potential is understood. And if you interrupt the action potential, you interrupt the buildup to a movement taking place, but you can also build up on an individual level to memory formation. This is how, this is part of how the memory whole process works. The information control, the information war game, cognitive warfare. Uh, you know, you get people to depend on you, but you know, when people are fearful, they buy more stuff. And you know what? <clears throat> that if when you think about it, when you're shifting global supply lines, when you're, you know, pulling some out and plugging them in in different places, what you need are strong economic feedback loops to cement them in place. Well, how do you get strong economic feedback loops? Well, you spur consumption. And if what the government wants to do, it needs to do in order to ensure that these new supply lines stick as in they're economically profitable, as in you don't have to have one world government because that's very, very hard actually. It's very hard to govern a nation overseas. It's an expensive process. You know, what you need is for them to participate in what it is that you want to do on their own accord. When I say well, on their own accord, I don't mean that there isn't coercion involved. Uh, Charles Eisenstein had an, uh, an article just in the last few days where he talks about how um, nations in South America are sort of, um, you know, kept on the, the you know, corporate energy system. And he explains it in terms of a prison warden who gives um, all the inmates three quarters of the necessary rations. And then you wind up with uh, positioning and, and, you know, that, that forms, you know, th then you have sort of gangs form. You have warlordism that results eventually, because if you don't, somebody else will. <clears throat> so it's a prisoner's dilemma that gets people to begin to take and fight from each other. And eventually there's one group that has all the food they need. They're comfortable. And then everybody else has half rations and they begin to get pretty agitated. And then they have conflict amongst one another. And, the, you know, then you have, um, you know, people in their own, in one nation selling out their own people. And this happens uh, seemingly with the oil industry, even without like U.S. oil running the oil show. Um, even even though those oil companies are locally owned, uh, in some cases nationalized, in some cases privately owned, whatever. Um, but those people who are benefiting from that, who who make the profit and who have jobs for their tribe, right, for their people, their political cadres. Um, when somebody protests, you know, the oil spills on the land or goes to court to try to stop, you know, some new drilling from happening, um, there are a lot of murders that take place. 
And I don't mean like a lot is in dozens. I mean, a lot is in hundreds and hundreds in one nation alone. Or, you know, I, uh, I think Eisenstein said, um, or uh, am I saying his name right? I hope I'm saying his name right. Um, uh, I've never talked to him. I've never met him. But uh, <clears throat> uh, what he said, what Charles says is um, it, like a thousand. I, I don't know if he's talking about one nation. I can't recall for sure, but it's a lot. There's a whole lot of infighting that goes on in regards to control of those resources. And you know what? Western powers, the U.S., uh, you know, the, the corporate megaplex doesn't even have to push that button. It doesn't take the CIA to make that happen. I'm not saying the CIA doesn't train people on the ground there. Probably does. That's a lot of what the CIA does. In fact, uh, John uh, Kirikow refers to the CIA as having evolved into a paramilitary intelligence operation that, um, you know, people that he, you know, worked with in the office uh, would come back and, and just matter of factly say that they were out killing people or teaching people how to kill people. So, you know, that is, that is some of what goes on. He was talking about the Middle East, but, you know, if it's done in the Middle East, you can assume that it's done everywhere everywhere that the U.S. can operate, and the U.S. operates pretty easily in Central and South America. So, you know, where does that bring us? Um, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. What I would say is, you know, try not to fear. Yes, there are pains. Yes, we're going through re reorganizations. If you happen to live in the U.S., you are in the best position in the world, ultimately. Um unless you're making enough noise that that a boot comes on the neck um uh, trying to make that you know some of that noise for you so that you don't have to but i uh, honestly um i i think that the odds that that i suffer any worse than i have for it it's actually not particularly high um not unless i i uncover some very specific crime of a specific individual uh i'm not worried about uh you know, the government coming and killing me for explaining the dollar. <laughs> um, you know, cer certainly not on that level, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, so, you know, it is, is every, you know, we're told, oh, there's going to be like, uh, we're told there's going to be internet outages. We're told that something big will happen. We're constantly given this sort of Q messaging, right? This QAnon messaging of, you know, um, on May 13th, there's going to be an event in which, you know, and we're described how it is that something is going to happen that makes life seem impossible or totally miserable. And it will, it will suck if something happens. And don't get me wrong. I do believe that the, you know, um, Franken fascist complex uh, may pull a lever or two at different times, but they will only pull it as, as far as they need it. This is not the kind of situation in which people should be like jumping off roofs, right? And this sort of like slow fentanyl suicide that some people um, have reached for is unnecessary. If your anxiety level is that high, you need to be working on your mental health, right? You need to be plugging into your community and spending time around people to the level that you feel is ordinary, that life feels ordinary. Um, on the other hand, it's not a bad idea to put your energy into productive activities, right? Like I said, we're gardening. We don't want to be, you know, part of a food shortage. 
Uh, we have seen food prices go up. <clears throat> uh, do I think they'll go up more in the future? Yeah, I, I think so. So you know what? Having having the ability to do some gardening at home just seems like a great idea to me. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not saying don't prepare, don't prepare for change. You know, um, look for opportunities to solve problems within that change. That's what business is. That's the thing that we are taught out of by going through schools that we go through that semi that you know the attempt is to semi lobotomize us make us uh, workers who can be controlled by fear lever levers all our lives and who don't don't have enough you know cognitive energy left to unravel the lies that control us right um it is possible for almost every family to be running a business in fact the u.s used to operate that way if you go back to the mid eight, uh, 19th century the middle of the 1800s, 70% of U.S. homes ran a business. That's enormous. That's, you know, that speaks to a level of independence that can be achieved. Fortunately, we're in this prosperous land and there are a lot of educated people here. You know, up your educational game. Everybody should keep reading, keep learning new skills, new tasks, uh, new facts, you know, everything that you can be be discerning and energetic and you know conquer something you know um knock down a, a problem knock down a wall um <clears throat> so you know don't get mired in fear keep looking for new things to do it may be that dollars are going to collapse but you know what if somebody tells you three to six months do you really think they know right what what are the like between one of your friends having enough information to put a timeline on this. Oh yeah. Did that friend tell you about the mortgage bond collapse? Did they, did your friend, did your friend tell you about the repo market collapse? Right. Did your friend tell you about the, the tech bubble collapse? Now, each of those things was predicted by small handfuls of people. And maybe there are like 17 people on the earth in the overlap in the Venn diagram, right? But that's probably not the friend who's telling you that the dollar is going to collapse in three to six months. That said, I personally made statements like last year. I said, you know, uh, just talking with people I knew, I said, you know, my subjective probability that the dollar breaks this year is X. And that value, it changes. You know, will it happen in the next year? I, in fact, I'm less worried about it happening in the next year than I was six months ago or 12 months ago. Um, and, and maybe that's simply having thought it all through, knowing that the West is already preparing for that, is already pushing buttons to make people buy more at certain times in order to make certain feedback loops healthier. Feedback loops are extraordinarily important to the whole process. Uh, and this is what you know people should always understand. Imagine a scenario in which you have a, a rancher uh, let's say a large ranch with a thousand head of cattle that probably takes about one and a half eh, more, you know, maybe a little over one and a half square miles to run. Um, I don't know the cattle economy that well, but I've, I've read a little bit, maybe a thousand, you know, you know I don't know. Um, maybe two square miles, two square mile ranch, thousand head of cattle. Let's say that some event causes 90% of, you know, Let's go bigger. 98% of those cattle to perish. 
feed becomes more expensive, there's a war, there's less available labor, everything is in, in shock. And at the end of the day, there are 20 cattle left. Sure, some of it's sold off for meat. There is sort of capital pulled in to be reinvested in the future. But, uh, you know, let's say that your capital plus cattle at the end is approximately equivalent to just having 50 cattle. Let's say going from 50 to 1,000. How do you get back to where you were? And currently the cattle market has like a 6% return on investment. It's not like a huge boom market. It's something that you do when you're out and you have the land, right? But let's say um, if the market gets hurt, now it's, uh, it's, you know, it's more scarce. Maybe it's 12% return on capital. You've got to go up to 20x. That's more than four doublings. Mm, is that about 4.3 doublings? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. 4.33 doublings. So you've got um, you've got to double 4.33 times. 12%, you double about every six years. Six times 4.33 is 26 years. It would take 26 years, even within a known business where all of the technology is understood and all the, the inputs are available. It would take 26 years to get back to where you were with that cattle business. So, you know, healthy supply lines are important. It may even be that our leadership justifies actions during the pandemic that caused the culling of people who are elderly, mentally ill. When you look in 2020, that's who died. That's who died in 2020, largely, right? Um, people who were very obese and unhealthy um, outside of that, but people, you know, with many pre-existing conditions, three, four, five, six, seven, pre-existing conditions. Now, from the psychopathic ruler perspective, you can see that justification quite easily if what it does is establishes these economic feedback loops. So in a sense, the same people who are harming us are also the same people that you know their incentive is to make it work on the other side. That's an advantage that we have at least, right? If, if you're, you know, going to be, you know, in a, in a power dominated relationship on the wrong side of it, uh, what you at least want to do is understand the mechanisms of rationality of the other side. This is why people talk about the difference between uh, robber barons and dictators, right? There's some people who rule with such an iron fist that everything around them is squalor and poverty. They just don't care and they don't, and they, and they're not educated enough to think it through. Right. Um, North Korea, uh, Tibet used to be like that. Actually, um, the llamas were not like, you know, this Shangri-La society where everyone sort of danced in harmony. No, it was actually a very, you know, uh, uh impoverished, filthy, uh, nation that, um, <clears throat> I think I've seen, uh, the suggestion that it had the lowest average IQ of any nation in the entire world. And that, you know, lots of people were just constantly starving, much like is currently going on in a place like North Korea. It was North Korea before North Korea. On the other hand, you have the robber baron mentality. The robber barons um, know enough to know that there is some sort of an equilibrium 
where they can maintain power, but keep the people nourished to some degree around them. And that that's a better existence for them than the, uh, than the dictator who would, who just doesn't know better than to just dominate people so severely. Right. So what you want to see is what is the level of rationality of the people who have the most power? And you want to think through what it is they're doing and what they're capable of doing. Are they doing awful things? Are they capable of doing awful things? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, can you count on them to be thinking about economic feedback loops that will affect the lives of their children and their grandchildren? Yeah, you can. And I'm not saying that, um, not saying you shouldn't prepare for something like there, there will be something that happens. There will be some kind of a shock. There may very well be the day that it breaks. It may also be that there's a preparation before that to smooth the transition somewhat, right? Just in the same way that, uh, what all the, all the banks, all the gold was confiscated out of the banks in 1933. We may see some moment like that. And that, that alone is its own form of pain. Hey, we're going to confiscate a whole bunch of your wealth and property, but we will have a functioning system in the next era, according to what it is that we want to run as the robber barons, right? So, you know, six and a half dozen the other, you know, which, which would you prefer? We, we can count on the fact that they're thinking about feedback loops. So this is where I am with all of this and understand I'm not advocating anything about policy here. Well, I mean, you know, I do advocate, um, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's some basic advocacy, but, you know, uh, uh, amongst the options that are in play, but understand that the U.S. really is, is in such a powerful position of negotiation that Victoria Neuland can say F Europe. And it's not even really that big of a deal, right? The scandals that you've seen go nowhere. This freeze thaw that you've seen constantly, you know, um, a scandal comes out and there's nothing actionable about it. And that, that is simply because there are very, very few concentrations of power that could do anything in the entire world right now. That's the moment that we're living through. There may never again, there, there, there may never have been this much consolidation and centralization of power. It may be that there is never again so much. It may be that, that what we learn in this era is how to better build systems that decentralize and that as wealth grows over the next 200, 500,000 years, that, um, that all of that new growth is more network managed and that there's just never again a need for such a schism, right? It may be that this is the last time we experience the Triffin Paradox, that earthquake when it is that a reserve currency rolls over from a nation to another group. And there were attempts to try to make uh, an international currency, you know, like a basket of currencies um, or special drawing rights. These things all have their own problems. They were never going to work. Um, but... Um, Bitcoin might, it might, and it may be that, that that was actually put in place by the Western powers, knowing that, and, and, and the reason the U S might want to do this is because, um, ultimately, uh, the Western, you know, uh, the U S corporate government complex controls so much of the traffic, the trade traffic technology, 
right? Those are the things behind the, the supply lines, the supply routes. Those people don't need to control the currency to profit. What they need is for a currency to exist so that the supply lines exist. So it may very well be that there's a very well orchestrated game that necessarily results in some future that is something like a Bitcoin future. It may, it may very well be that um, the awful things that we've seen, eatricide, amazing total lies, <clears throat> it may be that they are sacrificing the pharmaceutical complex. I don't know that. I'm, I'm saying that, you know, I, I don't know either way, but they may sacrifice some poor forms of governance and some poor forms of corporate behavior in order to reach the next future in which um, some of the problems are swept away and there's no more need, using that from their perspective, for eatricide or for the manipulations. You know, this is maybe, you know, for them, from their perspective, this is this may be the best that they can do without something that would be a total reformation of the U.S. government at the exact same moment when the Triffin Paradox is resolving. So there is a certain rationality from that, you know, Franken-fascism perspective. So that's where I am. Try not to live in fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, accept what you see as well as you can learn more to understand it. Uh, you know, the, the more that you learn, the better it is that you can handle it. Yes, there are bad things that you weren't told about when you were 8 and 12 and 17 years old. There are problems that we need to solve. There are horrible things going on in the streets. There are homeless people, you know, all, all over some cities. And it's, it's horribly sad. There are people who are just, you know, essentially committing suicide with drugs. There, there's a lot that's going on. There is also the, ver the possibility that what we do with our time and energy is that we build the next era that is so much more healthy and so much more nourishing. It may be that the power of the robber barons gradually dissolves some after they've lost their currency. I think they're trying to take the best defensive positions that they can to keep as much of the power for as long as they can, but that power will be distributing into networks. But we have to build those networks, right? And in fact, it may even be to some degree they want us to get up, wake up, and build more businesses and build more of those networks because, like I said, supply lines have to pivot. They are breaking, period. So <clears throat> try not to live in doubt. The lights may go out. It's far more likely they go out for 48 hours than they go out for four months. The internet may go down. It's far more likely that it goes down for a week than 10 years. You know, these may be levers that are pulled to control lever, uh, you know, levels of fear. Uh, and it may be that that's used to organize people in certain ways. Who knows? Maybe, you know, there are people who fear that Americans will be put on uh, trains and taken to gas chambers. I'm not saying that's impossible. 
Um, what I'm saying is that it's far more rational that what Western powers want is further economic uh, profit building into the future. They have their own form of building, whether or not it's the same form of building that you're doing. But um, it, it makes sense that what they want is supply lines that work. So to any extent that you have anxiety and you have fear, put that energy into something that's productive. I'm going to go ahead and say this now. I haven't um, announced what I'm doing yet, but I'm currently in the works of, well, one, building up my education business a little bit more, making use of some of the resources that I developed in the past. My, my hope is that that takes up, you know, an hour a day of my time on average. Um, two, I'm, I'm researching, uh, what may be a very real large scale business that, um, it, it, it's, it's a, an, an interesting finance business that I think I'm the first person to have thought of, but could be, um, sort of wildly profitable and create new capital in a very weird way and weird sense. And it may, it may pull the rug on temptations for unproductive work. It will also work well to tie Bitcoin together with the dollar economy. I mean, if Bitcoin fails, it fails. If it's going to succeed, we need for it to have as many businesses as possible to work through. And this would be one of those businesses. So um, I may have something like an announcement uh, later on in March, still working through the details, talking with uh, you know, friends uh, who are lawyers uh, may have to hire a lawyer myself to get certain levels of work done. But, uh, well, that's where we are. Well, uh, I, I thought this was going to be short. Uh, looks like I've gone about 66 minutes here. So I'll go ahead and wrap things up here. Um, I haven't really, when I talk, I don't read well. I haven't really been paying too much atten attention to the uh, comments. I'll take a, a moment here and see if, the, if there are comments that would that would help. America has a trade surplus of psychopaths. Interesting thought. I'm not sure if it's a trade surplus uh, so much as a sifting process. Uh, when I wrote the article that I wrote on the lie detector tests used in the military, you know, it, I find it very hard to believe that's not used to select for psychopaths for missions that need to be uh, need for them to be available. And I think the corporations did that already in Europe. Um, in a softer sense, in a softer sifting process. But you could certainly see those people rise to the top. Go back and like look up like leaders in the you know British East India Company and then in the Dutch East India Company. You can tell that these were, you know, the kind of people who would, you know, you can imagine being the angry boss who just scares everybody into doing what they want uh, in the corporate boardroom. Um also, interestingly, I watched a documentary on Scientology the other day, and that thetan meter thing that they use is basically like a subset of a polygraph, or it is a polygraph test, essentially, from what I can tell, um, which, makes, which made me think, oh, is that what Scientology does, is sift for psychopaths? You know, you go through all these levels of like solving problems and talking about them with, with the person who's on the other side of that thetan meter. Um, but but maybe that's what it's about. <clears throat> um, let's see. Check out Pringles. The power of money argues the best model will be a basket currency going forward. No, no. Ultimately, that just um, 
you know, the fiat system is going to fail. It's just going to fail. There is no better currency than the dollar. There's not even one that's anywhere close, right? Um, and the moment you create a basket, you know, you have the possible manipulations of, I don't know what's in that basket. You'd have to ask, why does the basket do better than the dollar? It doesn't, right? Um, it's just not true that all of the currencies in the basket contribute to that, you know, deep ocean domination. And, and it is probably, even from the user perspective, it's probably better to have one set of governance over technology and intellectual property and understand I'm saying that as a person who thinks that intellectual property is uh, awful, <laughs> immoral, should be illegal. Uh, but that um, uh, not a basket economy, he's talking about a, a basket of currencies, like, you know, you have one um, you know, money unit, let's just say that instead of carrying around a dollar, you carry around a thing called money unit. Um, but really only the banks use it. But that money unit may be 60% dollar and 12% pound and 17% euro and 9% yuan, right? That That's what he's talking about. People have thought about this, but it, you know, there, there's, yeah, it's just not going to work. I mean, you might as well just do special drawing rights at that point, because whatever the power is behind that functioning system, it would actually be a natural distribution of the power that is up, that people are otherwise looking for ways to compute in the basket of currencies and the basket of currencies, it would just get manipulated. I mean, people, people may even like, you know, um, sabotage other people's economies just to take a position on that new basket of currencies. There's just so much, um, that could go wrong there. And let's see. Well, I think that's good for now. Uh, well, thanks for joining me. I appreciate all of you who are watching, uh, all 50, 60 of you, 60. Is that what we're looking at? Um, 50 on Rumble right now. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, I hope this is a helpful video. If, if, if you think this is helpful for some people, send it to them. Um, you know, it's kind of relaxed, a little bit babbling. I did not have a chance to prepare a slideshow, anything like that, but I hope that it's helpful, helpful for some people, you know, get out there and, um, Get out there and build some businesses or, you know, uh, set up a homeschool co-op or, you know, garden, whatever it is that you're able to do, whatever it is that you think would be helpful. Do some of it. Right. Anyhow, uh, don't fear. Um, uh, relax, learn, love the people around you and come back and watch us at Rounding the Earth. We appreciate it.